Hey everybody, how is it going? It has been a while, hasn't it? Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, this is the Pillars Podcast. I am your host, Dylan Bowman. And today I am very excited to share a conversation with professional cyclist and Red Bull teammate of mine, Mr. Tim Johnson, of course. Most of the time on this show, we focus on trail and ultra running, but for those who know me, you know that I am a fanatic of literally almost every sport in the world, including cycling. And more than being a fan of sports, I am just a huge fan of athletes. And Tim is a great athlete, and he truly represents what it means to be a great ambassador who has a long-term impact on his sport. And honestly, his career is something I aspire to emulate within trail running to whatever extent I can. But in his heyday, Tim was one of the best cyclocross athletes in the world. He earned six national championships among many, many other accolades. He also raced professionally in Europe during the height of the doping era. And so it was really fascinating to hear him talk about that, just how heartbreaking it was for him, but also how that experience helped to shift his career towards cyclocross, where he ultimately had huge success. And I think more than anything, it is Tim's post-racing career that I admire the most. After he retired from pro racing, Tim remained around the scene as an ambassador and has really helped to shepherd the sport forward as the director of development for USA Cycling, where he used his experience, his relationships, his reputation to look after the aspiring pro riders who came behind him. Tim is now the director of performance for Super Sabians, a continuous glucose monitoring technology company, which we talk about at the end. Um, but he's just an awesome guy. Honestly, this one felt a little rushed. We had a hard stop and I had much more that I wanted to get into, um, but we didn't have a lot of time. So we'll just have to do a round two eventually, but here is round one. I hope you guys do enjoy. Please welcome the cyclocross icon, Mr. Tim Johnson. Okay, Tim Johnson, welcome to the program from an Airbnb in Vermont. It's good to see you, buddy. <laughs> you too. You too. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Explain to the audience what you just told me about your hand uh, before we pressed record here. Uh, well, hopefully we, we'll get a little bit of a background noise to go along with it. But um, the Airbnb hosts were like, hey, while you're here, would you mind feeding and the chickens and picking up the eggs in the morning. And I was like, yeah, of course, why not? So I'm out there and I get kind of, I'm in the coop and I get close to a hen and I'm like trying to pick her up and put water and food in the thing. And the rooster comes ripping at me like full speed and he wants to attack me. And I like pull my hand away really quickly because he's trying to like just peck me so hard. And I smash the back of my hand against the side of the, the chicken coop so here I am, very swollen, 
very sore and I, I'm not even sure if I can hold a beer at this point. So look at, look at you p- playing injured. I, I appreciate, <laughs> appreciate the hustle, you know, still coming I'm to do the sling. podcast, even though a, a rooster managed to potentially break your hand. Dude, <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on the show. And I think people are really going to love this. And obviously most of the people who listen to the show are, are runners, but I love to talk about other sports. I'm a big fan of other sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you're going to have a lot of valuable things to, to leave the audience with, even if they don't necessarily share the same sort of like competitive uh, background that you do. But before yeah. we get, get started, I wanted to first give you an opportunity to talk about uh, Wout Van Art yesterday on uh, oh the, the Vontu. Of course, I'm talking about the Tour de France now, stage 11. Yeah. Wout Van Art, the reason I want to ask you about it is because he comes from the the cross background, the cyclocross background. So what were your reactions uh, seeing Wout smash that stage yesterday? And just like, yeah. give me your your professional sort of take on his trajectory through cyclocross yeah. and into the Grand Tour. Yeah, well, I mean, he's one of us for sure. I mean, I remember seeing him up close for the first time at Cross Vegas. So that was, you know, a September cross race around the Interbike Trade Show in Las Vegas. And little Wout at that point, little Wout was literally five, seven hundred and twenty pounds. I mean, he was this skinny little kid. He was 18, maybe, uh, racing under 23. And this little kid, um, you know, I'm racing and, and I think I was like riding top five and it was him and Quentin Ehrmans, who's another well-known Belgian cross racer. These two little kids were on this under 23 program from Fidea at the time. And I couldn't get rid of them. I'm attacking them. I'm trying to outrun them. Um, I'm trying to bunny hop. They're bunny hopping. And I remember getting to the finish line. And, you know, this is a big deal in the U.S. Like, Cross Vegas was a big race. Yeah. yeah a C1 race. And big money on the line. Sven Nice is there. I think he might have won that night. Um Anyways, get to the finish and I'm, I'm sprinting against Quentin Ehrmans and Wout and I get smoked by both of them. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, 35 at this point, uh, early thirties maybe. Yeah. And this kid just crushed me. Yeah. I was like, who the hell is this kid? And so going to Europe to continue to race and see them around, I see him around, um, we became friends. I mean, Wout, Wout is a, a legitimate friend and, awesome. and someone who I, um, keep in touch with, um, you know, he went through some real tough challenges. Like, so imagine being like the chosen one in your country, you are the next best hope after the reign of Sven nice. Who's like, you know, superstar, not only is that enough pressure, but then you have someone like Matthew Vanderpool, who is from the Netherlands, yeah. who's the same age, or sorry, a year younger than you, who is better than you. Mm. So you've got the two countries that are competing against each other the most. You've got somebody who's a little bit better and you have to deal with that. He got into some team issues a bunch of years ago. And, um, it was really, it was nice to be able to have a conversation with him while he's in the middle of this, like, you know, his team is splitting, he's getting sued by a former sponsor yet. He's not being taken care of. It's like the background of sport. The business of sport is always, there's always something more than what you read. And so here's a kid. He was like 22 at the time. He was already world champion, I think twice by then. And 
he eventually signed for the team he's currently racing for. Yumbo Yumbo Visma. Visma. Yep. So he gets picked up by, you know, this up and coming team that's going to just, you know, give him the opportunities he needs, you know, eventually putting someone like Rog- Roglic on the team. They become this like two headed monster for the squad. Um, and anyways, he, he made a lot of really mature decisions as a young rider, even while growing up under the spotlight in a country like Belgium. And, uh, and then the Tour de France two years ago, he's in, he wins a stage early in the race, his first Tour de France. He wins the time trial a few days later. Yeah. So legitimate race against the clock. You are the only person that can win or lose. He wins the second time trial of the tour, like 10 days later, he's in this TT, he's having a great race, goes around a corner and he takes it so tight and so quickly that he clips the fence on the inside of the turn. And there's like this interlocking fencing that is around the course in in the bike race, sometimes in running races. And he clips this fence so closely, a piece of metal about the, the length of your index finger goes into his glute and rips the muscle from the bone. No. He crashes so badly. This is a really strong, powerful guy. By this point, he's like 6'2", maybe 6'3". I mean, he's actually a lot like you in in size. Yeah, yeah. He's he's bigger than most in the sport, but he's so powerful. This is why I love him. I love him because he comes from cross and now he's like smashing it as a grand tour rider. And totally, he's a bigger guy. He can win in the mountains and he can win on the time trials. He's such a beast to win a legitimate sprint stage and a (laughs) TT. I mean, that hasn't been done in a long time and certainly not without drugs. And so he's like, anyways, he ends up on the ground incredible crash ripping this powerful muscle off of his pelvis off of his femur he has you know nine or ten months of rehab ahead of him they reattach the muscles um really nasty crash so to see him come back yeah to continue to win continue to deal with matthew vanderpool and then to crush it yesterday on fun two yeah it's just awesome i mean it gives you goosebumps thinking about it Great guy. That's so cool, man. Well, thanks for providing your perspective as a, <laughs> a cyclocross icon who also uh, raced a lot on the roads. But, you know, Tim, I, I want to talk a lot about your career, not only as a professional athlete, but one of the things that I really respect and admire about you is the fact that you've been able to continue to have a really big impact on your sport and the athletes within it, both the professionals and sort of the more recreational um, participants in the sport mm-hmm. of cycling as you've aged out of being sort of like a top tier professional racer. And mm-hmm. so I want to talk about all those things, oh, but I think, I think man. first, I think first, just because of the fact that most of the people who listen to this aren't going to be as familiar with your career as yeah. I am, just give, give the quick, like two minute version of who Tim Johnson, is uh, sort of how you you came up within the sport, and then we'll go a little bit deeper on uh, yeah. on your your career. Sure. Well, I, thank you. That was very kind of you. Um, <laughs> intros like that, I, I can't I can't get my head around it. Um, <laughs> but I was just a, I played soccer as a kid. I got into like um, BMX. I kind of ran a little bit, but I played soccer for a long time. Um, got into mountain biking as a local kid in new England and my world was very small at that time. I was really only, you know, knew my local towns and that was it. Um, but through bike racing, I got exposed to, 
um, the New England area through mountain biking. I got into a little bit of um, road racing, and then I was introduced to the sport of cyclocross shortly after that. And so I had this kind of parallel path because cross was so small at the time. I was focusing on the road and mountain bike. Mountain bike kind of kind of split away for for a while and focused on the road. I turned professional um, in 2000. And by that point, I had just scored the first medal at cyclocross world championships for an American. So it was like a really big deal. Um, and so I continued on the road. I was like, you know, kind of this up and coming amateur rider as like amateur of the year from Bella news, like, you know, our, our Bible of the sport, um, yeah. cyclocross racer of the year. I won the elite nationals as a first year elite. So you kind of age out of 123 and then you start racing with the big boys and I was able to win it. Um, so I eventually won six national championships. Um, I, you know, kind of the thing I'm most proud of in cycling is that I, I went to the world championships for road mountain bike and cyclocross. And so that's like, I was always like considering, I always considered myself to be a cyclist rather than one and not the others. Mm. And so that was always kind of like a thing in the back of my head. And, you know, you mentioned kind of at the outset that you know, I came up in an era of doping and I had my heart broken by the sport. I had my heart broken by my peers, my, you know, direct, um, kind of leaders of my sport. Um, I was, I had my heart broken as a fan, um, you know, really just kind of, um, gave me, gave me a lot of reasons to stop. And that was kind of what happened to my, to my age group, to my generation, my yeah. year, the amount of riders that I started with would get less and less and the ones who are still racing. And so I'm a 1977 guy like Jeff Kabush, 1977, yeah. um, Katarina Nash is 1977. So like Jeff and I have a lot in common because he stuck it out. You know, he mm -hmm. was right up against the best in the sport, just, you know, almost openly doping in some cases, yeah. um, at that time. And he stuck it out and he's got, you know, one of the longest best careers in the sport because his approach to it was similar to mine. Like it was just about who he was and why he loved it rather than how fast he went or, you know, I don't if know. If you're on it, top like, of the podium, how willing are you to risk it? Right. You know. So, yeah, I want to talk about that. So you said you came up sort of as a mountain biker and cross athlete before you kind of got called up to the big leagues. At least mm -hmm. that's my interpretation yep. of what that must feel like as a up and coming, you know, uh, rider with professional aspirations to kind of get called up to, to race in Europe. How did that opportunity come about? Did you feel like you had made it at the time? And then at what point did it become clear what the culture was like in yeah. road cycling at that time. There was a bit of a gap because I turned professional in the U S um, I rode for a team called Saturn, which was like the best domestic team at the time. So we were very well funded, you know, a couple million dollar budget. We had a men's and women's squad. Um, so my first pro contract, I had a, a salary, like an actual salary. It was sizable. It was not like, you know, Phil Gaiman's book is about like, you know, getting paid $2,000 a year. Like that was not my contract. I was kind of coming in at a much higher level because of my success in cyclocross and kind of, i had already had a name that was built through that. Um, we got free cars, you know, I was living like the high life basically. Yeah. And then it was a domestic and international circuit of races. We had races like the San Francisco Grand Prix, which is downtown San Francisco, shut the city down you know, a few hundred thousand fans. It was 
you know, a huge thing, a tour of Georgia. At that time, there were quite a bit of races in the US that you could do. We would go to Europe to kind of get like um, bigger, harder races and then come back and, and try and beat all the other Americans. So I, I did that for three years before I got called up and I got called up to a new Spanish team um, that looking back at it was a terrible team, but I didn't know. I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to race the tour next year. This is awesome. Like I'm in, I got a two year deal. Um, I was so excited for it. And I think my biggest mistake was getting there and immediately thinking that because I was now there, they knew better than me. Like they knew better than I possibly could about how to go fast, which, you know, in some ways was like a hundred percent true. Yeah. But on the other hand, I was like, yeah, of course I can ride six hours tomorrow. And then six hours the next day and six hours the day after that, of course I'll ride with Tyler Hamilton, Levi Leipheimer every day in Girona, because uh-huh. that's just what pros do. Never mind the fact that they're, they've been pro for five years or seven years longer than me. And, you know, they were obviously dealing with a slightly different fuel source. <laughs> and, you know, so I was getting crushed, like, I, I had my, my legs ripped off and my heart ripped out. And like, by the time, you know, I got through that first year, I was just in pieces and I quit the sport. I quit the second year of my so, contract. But, but talk about the, the fuel source, because I mean, was it clear to you at that time that Not, w- what, what was going on? I mean, was it explicit? No, there were the biggest scandal at that point was still 1998 with the Festina scandal. Mm through early 2000s it was like a random person here and there would test positive it wasn't like systematic doping across different Mm. teams or countries and so it was like it was kind of an open secret amongst some riders and then others weren't clued in at all like you Mm. had to be a part of this like separate you know the chosen people to do this um And so I rode with those guys as like friends and like, I was a puppy dog following along on these training rides. I'd be like, you're doing intervals for three hours, like above Girona, like in the mountains with no food, like, okay, cool. I'm in thinking back now with perspective and like understanding it was absurd to even attempt it. Never mind, do it. And so I, I got slower and slower. Like I just literally ripped, ripped my body to pieces. And so, you know, classic overtraining symptoms of like, you know, ferritin levels dropped to the, to the bottom, um, cortisol is through the roof. Like my body stopped being efficient. I wasn't sleeping anymore. I was like, I was like panic eating. And I mean, some of the worst times of my life were Mm. in those moments between like having your hands almost able to touch the dream that you've been going for and on the other hand, realizing that you're miles and miles and miles away. So was there ever for you the temptation to sort of step across that very explicit line? For sure. And, and, and what, what, how do you resist temptation like that? If you do love the sport and you do want to be a professional, what was it like dealing with that temptation and how'd you avoid it? How'd you resist it? I think the the best thing that happened to me, were, it was a couple of things. One was that I was a little bit older when I was finally brought over there, you know, given the chance to get over there. I had already been racing. I had kind of like established a bit of who I was. Um, I was in a relationship that was great. Like I, I knew that, you know, this was like the version of my sport that I was like happy with. And then the other thing was that, by the time 
I kind of saw what was really happening. I realized that the people that I was racing with as teammates and some peers in the other, uh, from the other teams were people that I had nothing to do it, like nothing in common with, but also I didn't want them anywhere near. Like uh-huh. they were kind of schmucks. Like, you know, they t- treated people like shit. They treated the sport like shit because they wanted, they were willing to like step all over it and, and just kind of like gamify it for their own purposes. And it was like, wow, what a great way to describe that treating the sport like shit. I wish I could have at the time, yeah. you know, but it wasn't that easy. Like, I, you know, I got, I remember getting shit for reading books, you know, like my mom's a librarian I grew up reading and like, there I was in hotel rooms, like completely shattered. And I'm like trying to get lost in whatever I'm reading. Cause that's like the only salvation I have in the moment. Like, I mean, just, and I think one of the other things that saved me was that the people who were like giving me this, like, door to something different. They weren't my, they were my friends and they weren't my, my mentors. Uh, they were like, and, and reading back through like, you know, postal and, and knowing the guys who were involved and at, at some level and some better than others, like they were put in positions that I was not put into. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it would have been like if I was, you know, it wasn't like, Hey dude, you and me, like, let's go do this. Like, this is what yeah. we need to do to get to the next race or like to get better. You know, I, I never, I never had that moment. And so I think I was pretty lucky for that. So eventually you end up leaving Europe and sort of like quitting the road cycling scene and, and coming home. How did that, when you, as you were returning home, I mean, you said that the sport had sort of like broken your heart, but how did uh, that whole experience sort of like change your feeling about the sport, your enjoyment of the sport that you've been doing since you were a little kid? Yeah, I I had to restart like everything, you know, the things that made me, um, that challenged me, I needed to like really um, take down the size of those like distance speed um, who I was racing against. Am I thinking about racing the tour? Am I thinking about like suffering through local Southeast races in Georgia on this like really small pro team to get ready for tour of Georgia as like the highlight of the season. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to like really reset. I, I took a few months off. I didn't touch the bike at all, which is a big no, no for someone who's trying to be a professional cyclist. Yeah. Um, and all the while, like I had cyclocross in the back of my mind, but I had given it up to focus on road. And I, I didn't go to the world championships. I didn't go to nationals even. I, I really stopped. And so by the time I got my feet under me again, I was like back to riding bikes and I could also do cyclocross again. And by that point, I, I had kind of like figured out that if I did it right, I could have a road team get paid to race on the road and then also start a cyclocross team and then get different sponsors, different support. And I could make two incomes. Basically I could be a professional in two sports. And so that's how I did it the first couple of years. And I did almost a full road season, almost a full cyclocross season. We, the sport was growing in the U S we had more and more races. We had more and more prize money. We were getting on TV. Like it was, awesome. You know, so I kind of like hit that at the right time. Um, and there were some real decisions that we made, um, to take advantage of that. Like Jeremy powers was a peer at the time he was on my team as like my little, my little brother. Um, 
And as we were growing together in the sport, we were like, yeah, let's focus on the U S like we can make a real difference here. If you and I can go to these races and you and I can help promote them, then we can make the exposure bigger and better. We can sell this to our sponsors better. He splits off and goes to a new team. We become like nemeses and like, you know, it, it, it is really cool how it all developed, but it was really organic. Yeah. And it was organic because we put ourselves in the position to take advantage of it instead of like pursuing this dead end dream, which, you know, this right. is 2007, eight, nine, like. What a fortuitous thing. I mean, as you said, obviously like cyclocross is, taken off like a rocket ship since, since that time and has only become more popular in recent years. And so to stick with your values and your morals and leaving that European scene in the heyday of when clearly there was a lot of shady stuff going on only to come back and, and refine your passion and in cyclocross and then build an amazing career out of it. What was it like one when it started to become very clear and explicit as you're sort of building your cross career that the road cycling scene was sort of like crumbling at that point? Yeah. And maybe talk a little bit about, is there a difference in culture between kind of the European road racing scene and mountain bike and cross scene? And I guess, was that stuff happening? Was there an absence of doping in, in cyclocross? I mean, were you confident in the integrity of the competition? Yeah. Uh, up and down. I mean, that might be a whole nother yeah. podcast. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, the way that cross was growing versus road road was kind of decreasing in overall size at the start of short California, we were, you know, capital city to major city to major city, San Francisco, Sacramento, like all the way down the coast, um, LA, like huge race. Um, and it was 10 days at some points, you know, at every big pro team over the years, it got harder and harder for the Troy California to maintain that level of, of competition. But I, you know, I did the first four, I think, and, and loved it. It was an amazing race. And to, I was on the best team in the U S like we were winning everything, um, and so it was really great. And then I would just like hang up my road bike at the last road race. I would get on my cross bike and I wouldn't touch my road bike again until February. Like that's just how it worked. Mm -hmm. So I was really lucky to be able to do that. And I think it continued to give me perspective about where road was headed. The races got smaller, you know, we would have one race with huge prize money. And then the next day we'd be somewhere else. that was like, like such a tiny little shitty criterium in the middle of nowhere and be like, well, really like this is what we're doing versus huge news. The USA is going to host the world championships of cyclocross for the first time in Louisville, Kentucky. It was like the biggest news we could have ever, ever asked for. It's like, you know, getting a tour stage in your, in your town or like your country, um, you know, or like the Super Bowl being hosted in your local area. And you're like a, you're like a, a, a young football player and you want to yeah. like get there someday. Yeah. Um, so that was really to see it like that, I think, you know, I don't know that it's been like, I don't know that many other people share that same experience. So that was, that was cool. Um, the way cyclocross was kind of positioned and I guess mountain biking, mountain biking and cyclocross kind of were really together in the early days of mountain biking. That was Thomas Frischnecht was a cyclocross world champion who became a mountain bike world champion who now runs Kate Courtney's team, mm -hmm. um, Scott SRAM. Yeah. you know, at the world cup level, Nino Scherter, like 
he, his history is cyclocross first, then mountain bike with a little bit of road. Um, and then like, as mountain biking kind of grew and changed direction, it really split off and cyclocross wasn't a big sport. It wasn't a growing sport in Europe for many of the years that we were racing both in the U S and in Europe, it really wasn't. And that kind of showed why they came to the U S they saw that as a growth potential a growth market. They're like, Oh, maybe we can do this. And cross Vegas started, you know, we had our first world cup in the U S. Uh, so it's like, we kind of gave cyclocross a big, a big boost in the U S internationally, and they've taken it and run with it. And it's continued to build. We have three world cups in the U S this fall, um, you know, big deal for us. But as far as like the links that people would go to, I think there was a big shift. Like the, the early days of cyclocross, there were some big names that I think were probably involved in some, some shady stuff. Yeah. Um, but no one was ever really scandalous. Like, I don't know that we had much as far as like people getting busted. And I think there was also an expectation that like, Oh, the, you know, the EPO era, the benefits were on 30 minute Alpine climbs over yeah. a 10 day, two week, three week stage race. So cyclocross wasn't really quite the ripe market for that. Yeah. Um, well, thank goodness. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, and it just didn't have the money. Yeah. You, know, you could, you could sign a $2 million a year contract on the road. So I, I want to talk about this too, because I think the economics of it is interesting. And one of the things you said earlier was something to the effect of the behind the scenes business is always a little bit more um, involved than, than we expect. And for you to leave what was probably a really comfortable salary as a professional road cyclist in Europe to come back to sort of uh, ingratiate yourself in this smaller community of cyclocross and, and really help build mm. it. Um, I, I guess like what I'm curious about is like, was that a huge sacrifice for you? And maybe also tying in contemporary professional cycling, like there's a lot, at least as an outside observer, it seems like there's a lot more opportunity for professionals to make it across in, in many different mm -hmm. applications, right? You don't necessarily have to go to Europe to race. You can be a pro cyclocross rider. You can be a mountain biker, more of a lifestyle mm -hmm. cyclist like Phil Guyman. Um, anything there that you want to expand on just in terms of like the business of the sport, the economics of the sport? I think that was always something I was really curious about or interested in. And I, I probably would credit that to being able to talk to people who were um, active and successful in business early in my career. Like I remember getting my first contract offer and giving it to my friend, dude, what do you, what do you think? And he had started and sold a company in, in, in the cycling industry, um, was like really actively kind of aware of like the, the economics of the sport. And he's like, no, he's like, ask for more. And I was like, really? Oh my God. Are you serious? Like, did you think that they, this is crazy. Why would I ever do that? Um, you mean they'll pay for my expenses and give me a check? Like, yeah. holy shit. Um, you know, so you kind of like get beyond some of that initial, um, you know, the levels that you might have as a beginner or you just don't know anything. So I was lucky to have some people around me like that. Um, the, the business of cycling, I think is kind of a business model that is uh, quickly changing and, and leaving. It's, it's getting passed over by 
the understanding that you can not only own, but also create your own media. And so being a one, being one rider on a team of 15, where every single sponsorship category is full and sold on your behalf, you have no control whatsoever. Yeah. And so cyclocross was like a different season and the roadies, the road teams didn't want us to do it. They, they were like, no, 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 don't do that. Just go home. Just like sit on your couch, yeah. September, October, November, December, like start riding again and don't do anything. And I'm like, what? I mean, if I go to this race and I win, I get $500. Yeah. But if I go to that race and I win, I get $2,000. And then if I get in a magazine, I can sell that, that to exposure, a different an endorsement yeah. of a product to a company. And then I can make $5,000. Like it was obvious that like the harder, the more creative I became, the better off I would be. So the single paycheck idea is like understanding that if you're already an independent contractor, you're not an employee of a cycling team, you have so little control. Um, it's almost like, it's almost like a gig, um, gig economy idea where yes, the app tells you where to go pick someone up, but no, you're not an employee. So you don't deserve uh, health insurance. You don't, you know, you have to pay taxes out of your income, like things like that. Yeah. You have to own your own car, all this other stuff. So for cycling, it's like, yeah, you get a paycheck from a team, but really you don't get shit. Yeah. So cyclocross kind of gave me that chance to work on that. Um, I remember getting, I had a deal, uh, to ride, um, Cannondale bikes. And so Cannondale had sponsored my road team that summer, but in cyclocross, there's a totally separate deal. And so I did an entire season on a new bike, a new model of a bike. And I was very successful. I got in a bunch of magazines and TV and the early web and all this stuff. And so I, the next year I got a signature model of the same bike. So I got, um, royalties from sales. Um, I remember getting to a big road race in Philadelphia, you know, it was the national championships at the time is 200 50 K, um, in first week of June, went up and down many wall and finished on this, the right in front of the Rocky steps in Philly. Yes. <laughs> and Cannondale was there and the marketing director at the time, he's like, Hey, let's, let's get a coffee. I'm like, yeah, sure. We sit down for coffee and he's like, dude, I'm so excited. Like the new bike coming, the signature, like I had signed this the fax and then sent it in. That was the signature that was put onto the frame under the clear coat. I'm like, Oh my God. It's, like I grew up with BMX and the signature model of anything was like a total dream. And so here's this like Cannondale XTJ was the model. And yes. I was like, Oh my God, like so I'm in heaven. And he, he gave me a check for $20,000 to say, thank you for doing such a great job. Wow. And I was like, life-changing at that point. Like I yeah. thought, I thought my, I thought the cyclocross thing was like for $5,000. And I thought it was like, in addition to all the other shit I was doing. Mm. So then I'm like, huh, maybe if I sell my shoes and my helmet and my glasses and my clothing and, and the wheels and the components and like, but then you have to figure out what you're offering as value to all those companies. And then yeah. you know, before you know it, I'm sure you can like understand is like every relationship that you have, takes time and it takes energy and it takes emails. So each one of those sponsors is like a thousand emails yeah. and time. And so I wasn't playing, you know, Xbox after my races. Yeah. 
I was like calling and I was writing and I was trying to say thank you enough. Like I yeah. hope anyone listening so you're, out there- you're hustling like, much yeah. more than somebody who is on one of these grand tour teams racing throughout the year in Europe where all those sponsorships are sold, as you said, on their behalf and they don't have any say in who their partners are. And they likely only get a small uh, fraction of whatever the deal is with the team. That's really interesting. So as you've sort of like- you sort of like pioneered this sort of uh, small business as a professional athlete. Uh, and now sort of as you've been able to mentor younger athletes coming up behind you, is there any uh, sort of advice that you've given them in terms of, because obviously like you've, you still have a relationship with Cannondale. I don't know how long you guys have been still. together. Yeah. You're one of the, one of the early North American Red Bull athletes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've had done such a great job of delivering value to these brands and cultivating really long-term relationships with them. Mm -hmm anything there that you think would be valuable to the listeners just in terms of like how to make it, you know, because yeah. uh, the number one thing that I really want to talk to you about is that like, how do you make it, how do you continue to have an impact on the sport? How do you think creatively in a way that can allow you to, to approach it professionally? Well, I, I definitely didn't do any of that alone. Um, and I would still look at the things that I didn't do as like missed opportunities or, or disappointments in myself for not hustling even harder. Um, I had a, my mechanic throughout my career <clears throat> and business partner, Stu Thorne runs Cyclocross World, which is, you know, at the time an online retailer for Cyclocross products. But, you know, he and I were like, we were a team and, if it was me sleeping on his, on his, uh, floor of his hotel room when I was 17 up to, you know, being at the world championships for the 10th time with a chance of, you know, going top 10 and like being at the head of the sport, we were always doing it together and we would hire riders to, to join the team. We would help kind of figure out how to do it financially. You know, I brought Cannondale in and that's still a sponsor of the team to this day. Um, making it is really tough because yes, you have to be willing to hustle. Um, so much of it is due to relationships. And so there's like, there's the physical capacity and ability, which is like on this side of things that cannot be, um, overlooked. This is like key, key, key. Um, it's kind of blurring with like the influencer world, like, Yep. Are they actually it's happening across? Yeah. That happens in our sport too. in every sport at this point, I mean, yeah, the, so, like, the social exposure is as important as the performance at this point, it seems like. Yeah. And like, that was kind of hard because I got shit for being on Twitter. I got, I got shit for like, um, being on Instagram and like, you know, not sitting there with my legs up after a training ride and being on my computer working. Like, um, so it's kind of funny how that works. Like, so you have to have that, you have to have the hustle to kind of pull things together. And then, and then there's like the, the intangible part of it, which is like, you know, what are you representing? Are you representing either something fresh? Are you representing, um, some kind of, uh, authentic authority, like expert in your field? Are you translating for others? Like, can you have a conversation with someone who's not in your world? so that they're interested in it and they want to follow along because a lot of people can't like they're so head down in like their little world that they can't have a conversation with someone who's not directly next to them mm -hmm. in their sport. 
Um, and then you also have to be open. Like you have to be flexible. You can't be this rigid, like I'm training this, this way, no matter what, like I, I look at running from the outside, um, having done some, you know, my, my wife had, had been a runner for a long time. Like it's, it's like, yes, you, if you have the ability to run, you want to keep running and maybe that will, uh, you'll be faster for doing so, but then you just get hurt, but the, people still keep running. Like there's, it's like the durability of yourself in the sport. Like you can't do it so much that you hate it. You can't do it so much that you get hurt. Yeah, You got to like love it to want to continue to do it. But like, I don't know, you got to do it right too. Yeah. Um, making it. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, so kind of in the, in the same vein, obviously is like with injury and dealing with just like the stuff that we can't control in our lives and in sport. One of those things is, is aging. And I think one of the things that everybody in cycling really admires about you and, and as somebody who's just like a casual fan of all sports, one of the things that I really appreciate about athletes is, you know, how, how they age and how they continue to have an impact on their sport beyond the time at which they are in their prime and they're mm -hmm. competing for podium positions and wins at, at every race. And you've done such a good job. I know you, you told me like you hadn't, you never made like an official announcement, Hey, I'm retired from pro racing now, yeah. but instead it was just sort of like a gradual evolution of your impact. And mm -hmm. I, I wondered if there was anything that you wanted to share that you think you did particularly well, that's allowed you to continue to have an impact on the sport beyond just winning races, because I mean, we haven't even really, we're not even going to have time to really talk about all the great <laughs> things that you've done. Uh, but obviously like you've had an amazing career. People can look at your Wikipedia or whatever, if they want the <laughs> full, full rundown. But you yeah. know, for me, and especially as a, somebody who's, I'm now in my, I'm 35 mid thirties and still feel very much like I want to compete and whatever, but really I'm starting to feel more motivation to have a different impact on yeah. my sport as well. So just curious if you have any, any thoughts on that subject. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the calculations that becomes more important as you get older is you've been developing these relationships, these sponsorships, these events that you know the organizers organizers of, like you know the people who kind of help to run your sport is like you turns out it takes a lot of time to ride, it takes a lot of time to run. You're always traveling. So you kind of like miss out on opportunities. And so when I stopped racing on the road, I remember saying no to a, a contract offer that was legitimate. Like, please come back and be the captain of our road team. And I was like, nah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then like, what? And it was because I had figured out that if I don't fill up my spring and summer with road racing, I'll have more time to service the upcoming cyclocross season mm. with photo shoots and video shoots and, and training camps and like, product launches and, you know, all the, the, the behind the scenes functions of, um, sports endorsements. And, and I'll be able to go to a tour of California. I remember Rafa, um, was an up and coming brand in the U S and, you know, the guys in Portland, um, I had met through cyclocross racing in new England 
And they're like, Hey, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to ride every mile of the tour of California in like April before the race in May. Do you want to come with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. And they had this program called the Rafa continental, but instead of staying in nice hotels, eating nice food, um, you know, like we all slept, we piled into these rooms, although they'll give me shit now. Cause I never, I never shared my bed with anyone, but, um, <laughs> we ended up riding this whole entire route, but they paid for a film crew and they put it out as a series of videos, um, called Rafa tour California, 2011, I think and it was epic. Like it was so fucking fun. It was like nine days. I think that we were out there riding, and these were like cinematic quality, like tracking shots. And, uh, there were no drones, I think at that time, but like big Sur had just washed out highway ones closed for like a hundred miles or no cars. And it was just us riding along and our camera guide, Dan, Dan, uh, sharp. Um, he like, he had his DSLR with him and this is a, like the first time I'd ever seen anyone riding with a big camera mm-hmm. and film these really cool shots, like whales in the distance and like just amazing stuff. I never would have been able to do that if I was still racing, Yeah, but that played during tour California during the broadcast. So like I was now elevated among all of the people at the race because of this media exposure. You didn't even have to race it. (laughs) I didn't even have to race it. I mean, I wasn't going to beat Tom Boonen, but like, sure. You know, it was one of those things where like, if you create space, and you allow for like these relationships and these opportunities to kind of develop, then it just might pay off. And that I think has been uh, a lot of luck, but it's also been a lot of like um, being open to new opportunities. Sweet. So in the remaining time that we have, I wish that we, we had a little bit more, but we'll have to do it <laughs> around two. I think, uh, obviously I want to talk about USA cycling and then ultimately talk about super sapiens where you, where you are yeah. now. And mm-hmm. I guess just to, to start, um, what was your, like, how did you end up getting connected with USA cycling and, and in what capacity did they, want to use your relationships and talents and reputation and what value did you see yeah. as being part of that, that organization? Well, I think that was one way for me that was important is like, yes, I had stopped racing already. I still had relationships with Cannondale and Red Bull and, and Mavic and Giro and um, like Lululemon and some of these other companies and working with USA cycling, it was a fundraising role. So I was trying to help fund the programs that I took part in as a racer. And so it was real give back opportunity and it involved, you know, relationships and, you know, recognizing the fact that like there are a lot of people who love to ride who are, who have been successful in their lives and they're generous. And just to say, Hey, you know, would you consider supporting our programs? Like support these athletes? Like, you know, we've got Tokyo on the horizon. You've got LA 2028 coming up after Paris. Like, if you can help out now, you know, the benefits will be this, this, and this for all these different riders. And it's really cool to be a part of that. Um, so I enjoyed it. I, I worked there for, w- with everyone there for three years and, um, you know, having someone like Rob D Martini come in, who I had known a little bit while he was at new balance as CEO there. Um, I got a chance to be exposed to a different side of the sport and different people involved. And it continued to evolve my understanding of, what roles you might play in sport. Um, 
you know, recently, well, I guess last year, um, a, a friend of mine, Phil Sutherland, who is a type one diabetic, who I had met years ago, actually the year I kind of pulled myself out of the hole of cycling, um, in Georgia. Um, he was the first type one diabetic I had ever spent any time with. And he was a rider and he was like a total go-getter and wanted to be the fastest guy at the, at the races and, you know, win collegiate nationals. And he wanted to turn pro. And I was like, kind of an established pro at that point. And so we became friends and, and training partners. He did his first tour of California and I helped him kind of get ready for it. And he calls me up and he's like, Hey man, he's like, uh, turns out that, you know, being a type one is really hard for endurance sport in general. He was one of the only for a long time. Now his entire team is all diabetic. Um, but he's like the biggest difference that we ever did for any of our team members was give them visibility of their glucose. And so they hacked into a Wahoo. They took a sensor from Abbott and figured out a way to make the sensor talk to the Wahoo and put it in front of the riders. And it stopped them from bonking. It stopped. It, it allowed them to fuel themselves better because they saw where they were going, like up and down, depending on what they ate and how long they were racing for, how hard the racing was. And he's like, we're going to start a company and we're going to call it super sapiens. Like, do you want, do you want in? And I was like, yes, yeah. of course I want in. Oh my God. I believe, I believe in you. I believe in the, the technology because I had worn one at oh. a couple Red Bull project endurance camps oh, right? Yeah. where we wore CGMs, these continuous glucose monitors for 10 days at a time. And at that point it was just another layer, another metric that was added to 50 other layers of metrics. Um, and it wasn't real time, but I, I understood the concept. And like, basically what happens is, you know, as you are working out, you're running, you're riding, whatever you're, you're using glu uh, glycogen turns into glucose and it's in your bloodstream and it, and it empowers your muscles. And, and if you keep eating and you maintain a high level of glucose, and you don't let it drop. You can literally ride farther, run farther and Perform faster better. And, yeah. and feel better. And, and if you can see that in real time, it's crazy because you want to start eating far earlier. You want to eat more often, not necessarily more, but like it totally changes your perspective about what actually makes you do the thing that you're doing, riding, running, triathlon, whatever. So as a former professional athlete, what is it like now? Sort of like moving into the private sector and maybe what experience or what skills that you developed as a pro athlete are you using now as a, as a, <laughs> as a desk jockey? <laughs> Everything that I possibly can. Uh, it's startup life. Like, yeah, you know, everything from fundraising rounds, um, you know, who's investing and why yeah. to, um, product, like how, how is the app working with the, the, the person behind it? Like, what, what are they seeing? What are the numbers doing? What do they, what do they show? What's the, what's the UX like of that person, um, to marketing opportunities? Like, you know, we're in the Giro on, on, you know, the, the banners on the side of the road. Um, you know, we're the title sponsor of Ironman Hawaii and a bunch of European wow. Ironman. Um, you know, that's, those are huge properties that we are now a part of. Um, I'm, I actually leave for the tour de France on Saturday and we'll be there for the final week. Um, side note, the UCI 
as our governing body of the sport has decided to ban super sapiens from use in competition. Uh, Crazy. Um, just, they, just because it would potentially give some athletes an, an advantage, even though it's ideally keeping them healthier throughout the three weeks. Huh? You, yeah. Um, lots of head shaking, um, understanding that new technology, man, they'll, they'll come around, they'll come around. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So like we also sponsor UTMB. So, you know, for the summer, I, I won't be there. Um, but we'll oh, you gotta there. come, bro. You gotta come. <laughs> It'll blow your mind, man. It's the tour de France of trail running. It's right. Uh, exactly. It's, it's I want to race it someday. I'd love to, dude, you got to, you got to, or I'll, I'll be there for your training runs, but maybe <laughs> if I don't race, but no, so my role is very horizontal. Like I, I kind of touch a lot of different things and I really do draw every bit of experience I, I've ever had within my sport. Um, also energy levels, like you got to be ready to, to, to go when you got to go, you can't just like put it off. Yeah. Um, and it's also relationships, you know, we're a fast growing company and we're, we're trying to hire the right people and like get the most out of them. And you gotta, you gotta always be aware of like what people's motivations are and what, what can possibly allow them to be better at their jobs. Um, so yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I wake up in the morning and I, I want to look at my email. Like I'm really excited about what we're doing and, and where we're going. That's awesome, man. Well, I know we, we've got to run here in a few minutes, but again, I just want to say, uh, it's really cool. I mean, it's just awesome that you had such a great career as a cyclist and now you can use those relationships, which were always so important to you and that were critical in your success in building yourself as a small business and bringing the sport of cyclocross into the next generation. Um, and now, you know, obviously you still ride a lot. You're still very connected to the sport. And, uh, you guys put together a really cool video on the, the trans Taiga video, which I'll put in, oh, yeah. in the show notes. We don't have a ton of time to talk about that, but maybe talk a little bit about what you've got going on. Uh, like if there's anything that's motivating you as a, as a cyclist now, if you have any goals and, or if there's any other just comments on the, the current landscape in cycling, you know, the, yeah. the advent of gravel racing and sort of the rebirth the industry has had during, yeah. during COVID. Oh my God. I mean, talk about a bike boom, but, um, you know, I, I think a couple of things really excite me is that we've got a lot more gender equality, like women's racing. When I started, there was like one bright and shining star with, with our, um, counterpart at Saturn was we had a full women's team that were, they were all paid well. They all had just exactly the same support that we had the same amount of money that we had. Um, and after that team really went away, there, there wasn't a lot of support like that. Um, turns out that in the you know late nineties, early two thousands there, you could win $50,000 for winning the HP women's challenge. Like look it up on online, but it was a 12 day stage race for women. That was not UCI because the races were too long. The stages were too long. And the prize money was like five times that of a typical men's race. It was awesome. And it was definitely an American approach to, to women's cycling. So that's really, that's really cool. Gravel, I think is a great way to show that because of everyone being out there at the same time, you know, it's much more like at the level of everyone, people see it, but yet they still recognize what it takes to go faster, to, to be at the front of the races. Um, and prize money is equal, just like in cyclocross as well. Um, I think we are in a real golden age with, um, the generalization or the non-specialization of 
professional cyclists um, with with Vanderpool and Marianne Voss and Pauline Ferrand Prevost and, and Wout, like Tom Pidcock. You know, you're getting these crossovers across three different disciplines on the, you know, every single weekend, basically. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't like that before. You know, I, I love to see that. Um, you know, so I, I guess like things really are in a good spot and hopefully they're getting better. Um, you know, and, and like whatever, whatever role I might've played in, in kind of like helping that come to fruition, um, more than, more than excited for, but, uh, yeah, man, it's been, it's been cool. So I'm, I'm excited for what's next. Sweet. Well, Tim, thanks so much for coming on. Wish we had a little bit more time, but I'll let you go and uh, appreciate. Yeah. Just the example that you said, I appreciate you hooking me up with some super sapien stuff and uh, keep that glycogen high. (laughs) uh, Let's do this again in the future. Super fun to chat. Cool. Yeah. Let's do it. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. See ya. Thanks so much to Tim. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode, though it deviated a little bit from our traditional trail and ultra heavy conversation. There's just so much to learn from Tim about how to be strong and confident in our values and how to evolve with our passions and continue to find ways to contribute and have a unique impact as we change, grow, and age as human beings. I put a bunch of links in the show notes. Check out Tim on social if you don't already. I have links to both his Instagram and Twitter. I also link to a new video that his longtime sponsor Cannondale made about a long adventure ride that Tim did in Canada last year. And finally, I also linked to the Rafa Continental tour of California series on YouTube from 2011 that Tim mentioned near the end of our conversation. It's really cool, especially being 10 years old, seeing the advent of the Rafa content. It's really cool. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. As always, I appreciate you being here and trusting me with your time and attention. We will talk again very soon. Okay. Love you. Bye.